Evening, everyone. The Bible reading tonight is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork and created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Uh, Well, good evening. Uh, My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. If I'm yet to meet you, hello. I'd love to chat to you afterwards as we have supper together. Uh, If you're new or visiting, uh, welcome. If you're not new or visiting, welcome. I'm also glad you're here. Um... So you're aware, uh, each night or most weeks here at night church or at 6pm church, we have question time after the sermon. And so we've got a a phone number that will come up on the screen. And so if you have a question throughout this sermon, uh, feel free to text it in and I'll do my best to answer that afterwards. Um, But yeah, as you can see behind us, we're starting a new series called Jesus's Church. Uh, This is a six-week series, which we're beginning tonight. And basically, for the next six weeks, what we're going to be looking at is primarily, to begin with, we're going to be looking at the identity of the church. For the first two weeks, I'm going to preach on the identity of the church, who we are. And then for the four weeks that follow that, we're then going to look at the activities that flow out of our identity as a church. So the first two weeks, who we are. And then the following four weeks, what we do, which flows out of who we are. That's the plan. That's the preview, the heads up for this series. I'm going to pray, though, for us now before we dig into this first talk. So... If you're praying tight, please bow your head with me. Father God, we want to thank you so much for your word. We want to thank you so much for the gift it is and how you reveal yourself to us through it. Lord, we pray that you help us to respond rightly to it right now. Help us to sit under it. Help us to learn from it. Lord, please teach us, convict us by your spirit. Help us to follow your son and worship him all our days. We thank you so much for the gift of the church and how we get to gather as your people. And Lord, as we do so, grow us in a love for your church as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name for his fame. Amen. Uh, recently, I went to Liquorland at Fig Tree uh, to buy some apple cider. Now, um, if you're a bit concerned that your pastor drinks alcohol, um, that's okay. Um, but what I want to say is, I think it's okay for Christians to drink alcohol. Uh, Jesus, for example, his first miracle was turning water into wine. And also at the, his last meal, his last supper, he actually had wine as well. And even um, Pastor Paul tells the other pastor, Timothy, that he should have some wine because it's good for his stomach. So I think it's okay to drink alcohol. Uh, I think the Bible teaches that it's not okay to get drunk, but it is okay to drink a little bit in moderation. 
Anyway, that was a sidebar. Back to the story. Um, so I was at Fig Tree get, buying some apple cider, and when I went to go pay for it, the guy at the counter asked for my ID. He asked for my driver's license. Like, he wanted me to prove who I, who I was. He wanted me to prove that I'm some mature adult and not some underage teenager, some punk who was lying to him. Anyway, now, on most days, this would make me feel good about myself, right? Make me feel young, but not on this day. Because on this day, unlike many other days, I definitely looked over 18. You see, I had a manly beard, or at least an attempt at one. And, and I had my two sons with me. My oldest, Elijah, is four, and Isaac's is two. So I was a bit frustrated that this guy didn't believe who I was, that I had to prove my identity. I don't know about you, but I get frustrated when people don't believe who I am. They don't understand my identity. This story reminded me of another time uh, that I was at a shopping center with my son Elijah, and there was a, a woman there who was advertising the local school, and um, she, gave, sorry, she offered my son Elijah a balloon. And so as she gave the balloon to my son Elijah, she then turned to me and she said, oh, so what school will your brother be going to in a few years' time? And once again, I'm like, he's my son. Like, he's <laughs> not my brother. Like, I'm a mature man. Like, come on. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I get frustrated when someone doesn't understand my identity. I think to all of us, identity is important. As individuals, identity is important. But also to nations, identity is important. Like in many ways, the Brexit, the Brexit, if you want to call it, the, I think it's called Brexit. Anyway, it's, it's a national identity crisis. You know, the Donald Trump scenario, once again, it's a national identity crisis. Identity is important for us as individuals. It's important for corporations, for nations, and also for churches. You see, in the book of the, sorry, not in the book, in the New Testament, which is the second half of the book of the Bible, the authors are obsessed about teaching us about the identity of the church. Matter of fact, the authors use over 96 different images to explain the church. In the book of Ephesians alone, which is a book we're studying for the next six weeks, um, the author Paul talks about how the church is a body, how it's a building, and how it's also the bride of Christ. Now, why is the authors of the New Testament obsessed with teaching us about the identity of the church? Well, it's because the authors knew that your identity shapes your behavior. That your identity shapes your behavior. You see, the authors of the New Testament wanted us as a church to know that we are a family so that we will love like a family. We wanted to know that we are uh, like a bride so that we'll be faithful like a bride, that we are like missionaries so that we'll act like missionaries. And so that's the reason for the next two weeks, we're going to be beginning this story, sorry, beginning this series called Jesus Church by looking at the identity of the church. Because it's important not only for the New Testament writers, but also for us as well. Now, how are we going to do this? Are we going to look through the 96 different images in the Bible or even unpack all that the Bible teaches about the church's identity? Well, no, I've got two weeks, not two months. And so instead, I'm going to focus on what is most central, what is most important to our identity as a church. And what is that? Well, I think the most important thing that we need to understand is that as a church, we belong to Jesus. As a church, we belong to Jesus. So if we put it another way, the church is Jesus' church. The church is Jesus' church. You see, we need to understand that WBC, Wollongong Baptist Church, as great as our church is, it doesn't belong to us. Maybe we built this building or renovated it, but it doesn't belong to us or to the Baptist denomination. It belongs to Jesus. It's his church. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. And we're going to answer this question, though, why does it belong to Jesus? 
And to answer that question is, why does the church belong to Jesus? We're going to look at Ephesians 2, and specifically this week, we're going to look at verses 1 to 10. Verses 1 to 10. Because in these 10 verses, we're going to come across three reasons as to why the church belongs to Jesus. I'll tell them to you now, and I'll repeat them again. But the three reasons we're going to come across to this is reason number one, without Jesus, we are the walking dead. Reason number two, with Jesus, we are made alive. And reason number three, in Jesus, we are new creations. So reason one, without Jesus, we are the walking dead. Reason two, with Jesus, we are made alive. And reason three, in Jesus, we are new creations. Now, before we dig into Ephesians 2, it's important that I give us some context and background information, such as the author and audience of the book. So who is the author and audience of the book? Well, the author is the Apostle Paul. And the audience is the church in the city of Ephesus. And the city of Ephesus these days is located in Turkey, and it's basically a whole bunch of ruins. There's not much left of it. Uh, But this city in Ephesus is very similar to our city in many ways. You see, the city of Ephesus was a port city, like Wollongong is a port city. And the city of Ephesus had this famous stadium, like we have a famous stadium called Wynn Stadium. Though apparently the Dragons are not winning much in it, so I don't get the name. But anyway, with those similarities in mind, open up your Bibles, let's have a look at Ephesians 2 verse 1. And I'm going to read out the first verse to us and it'll come up on the screen. So the Apostle Paul says this to the church of Ephesus, which is very similar to our church. He says this, verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now let's just stop there for a second. If you're not too sure what the word sins or transgressions mean, they basically mean the same thing. They're quite similar. And what, it's trying to understand, what he's trying to explain here is that you are dead because you have rebelled against God. You are spiritually dead because you've rebelled against God. Um, currently, one of the most uh, famous shows or most popular shows in the world at the moment is a show called The Walking Dead. Uh, it's a show that is an apocalyptic show about zombies that are basically killing everyone and taking over the world. Um, I'm very fortunate to be married to my wife, Emma, um, who I think is maybe gone now. Um, and I'm fortunate in being married to her for many reasons, but one reason is we like similar shows. Um, but one sh- type of shows that she hates is zombie movies. Like, she just cannot stand zombies for some unknown reason. I just don't quite get it. In, in, in particular, Emma can't stand how in zombie movies, the ones where they walk really slowly before they kill you. Um, to quote my wife in her exact words, she said this to me the other night. She said, I would prefer if the zombie movies ran at me before killing me. Uh, thanks very much. Um, now, personally, I'm the opposite. I love zombie movies. Like, to me, it's like a big game of schoolyard tiff. Like, it just seems like a lot of fun with some bad consequences. Anyway, why am I saying this? Well, in Ephesians 2, verse 1, what Paul is saying to us is zombies are not the only ones who are the walking dead. You see, in verse 1 here, Paul explains to us the first reason for why the church belongs to Jesus. And that's because without Jesus, we are the walking dead. We're spiritually dead and far from God. You see, even though people may be physically alive, what Paul is saying here is without Jesus, you're spiritually dead. You're far away from God. And why is this the case? It's because of sin. It's because of rebellion. In verses 2 to 3, Paul unpacks what sin looks like, or does his best to in these few verses. And so we're going to read this out. Let me unpack to you what Paul's trying to say here in verses 2 to 3. It should come up on the screen. And so Paul says this. I'll read verse 1 again. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, or in other words, the devil, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, 
gratifying the cravings of the flesh and the following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. In these two to three verses, Paul unpacks what sin looks like. And he basically explains to us that what sin is, is when you don't follow God, but instead it's when you follow the world, it's when you follow the devil, and it's when you follow the cravings of your flesh. The world, the devil, and the cravings of your flesh. Let's just quickly have a look at these. So so firstly, Paul says, sin is when you follow the world. You see, what Paul is trying to say here is that sin looks like ignoring what God says is good and following what the world says is good. For example, it looks like following the world's advice when it comes to alcohol, relationships, sexuality, or how you use your money, or, or, or more things as well. Now, so I'm clear, I don't think what Paul is saying here is that everything in the world is wicked. You know, for example, like Pokemon or the Olympics. Like, I don't think that's wicked. But, but instead, I think what he's trying to say here is that there's many things that the world says is good, which God says is wicked. And when you follow what the world says, you are sinning. You're not following God. And so what does sin look like? Well, firstly, it looks like following the world. But then secondly, Paul explains to you how sin looks like following the devil. You see, in the book of Ephesians, Paul, he's obsessed with talking about principalities and spiritual powers more so than any other book. It's not a major thing, but it's a pretty key thing. And we may think that Paul is crazy when he talks about the devil, but he's not. He's speaking the truth. A friend of Paul's is a, is a guy called Peter, and he wrote a book of the Bible as well. And he t- described the, the devil as a lion that is hunting people, looking for people to devour. You see, sin looks like following the devil and allowing the devil to influence you rather than God and his Holy Spirit. So secondly, sin looks like following the devil. Thirdly, sin looks like following the cravings of your flesh. Now, there's nothing wrong with the naturally bodily desires. For example, our desires for food, for sleep, and for sex. There's nothing wrong with that. Our bodies are good things. As Christians, we don't believe that our bodies are evil things. We don't believe that at all. But what Paul is talking about here is when normal, natural desires become perverted, sinful desires. For example, he's talking about when your desire for food becomes gluttony, or your desire for sleep becomes slothfulness, or for sex becomes lust. And so thirdly, sin is when you follow the cravings of your flesh. You see, basically, in these three verses, what's Paul's point? His point point is that we are dead without Jesus, that we are the walking dead, that we are following after Satan, the world, and the flesh. And we're not following God unless we follow Jesus. <sighs> to be honest, these verses are really confronting. These verses are really difficult to read and to take in. And yet what Paul is saying in these verses is that these verses describe every human being that's ever lived by Jesus. You see, if you're a Christian, these verses describe your old life. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, these verses continue to describe your life right now. And how you're far from God, how you're spiritually dead. These words are really confronting, and yet to end this passage, or this, sorry, this section, Paul ends with these few words. He says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. I still remember a few years ago, um, I was in a car traveling on a country road uh, near Hay. Uh, I don't know if you know where Hay is. It's out near Wagga, basically, roughly. I'm not from the country. <laughs> Forgive me if that's really far off. But um, as we were driving along, I got really excited because I saw some, like, a, I think they're called a flock of sheep or a mob of sheep, a herd of sheep, whatever you want to call them. I saw a lot of sheep, but I got really excited. And you're like, why did you get excited? Sheep. If you know hay, you know that it's dead flat, that there's nothing, there's no trees, and to see anything is a real treat. 
And so I was really excited. I was like, yay, sheep. Uh, first thing I've seen in like two hours. Um, but as these sheep were coming, as we were approaching these sheep on the horizon, my excitement turned into confusion. Because what happened is one of the sheep, even though they were really far away from the road, saw the car and got scared and freaked out. And so that one sheep decided to run as fast as it could into the path of our car. What happened after that is that this herd of sheep, which is about a hundred of them, decided to follow that one sheep. And so before we knew it, we had a hundred sheep sprinting towards us as we're driving a hundred kilometers an hour, whatever it is. We had no time to stop. And so in that moment, the driver who wasn't me, was a friend of mine, had to dodge his way past all these sheep and try and save them. Unfortunately, he hit one and we killed one that day. Now, thinking, why am I telling you this story about sheep and why is it all exciting? Um, Look, in these verses, what Paul is saying is really offensive. It's really confronting. You know, what he's basically saying to us is, hey, look, you're not as good as you think you are. Matter of fact, you're, you're naturally wicked. You're like these dumb sheep and you follow other dumb sheep to death into the wrath of God, unless you know Jesus. But friends, the reality is because of our sin, we all deserve the wrath of God, the anger of God. The truth is, all of us have followed the ways of the world, the devil, and the cravings of the flesh. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, look, Joel, I thought that the God of the Bible is a God of love. Like, I don't know if I can follow this God of wrath and, and anger. And if you think that, can I say that's okay? I can understand that. But also, I want to read out to you a quote. A quote that I think would be really helpful from this topic of understanding that a God of love is also a God of wrath and justice. This quote comes from a guy called Miroslav Volf, who was a Croatian, and he writes this quote after his countrymen experienced the devastation of ethnic cleansings in the 1990s. It should come up on the screen, but let me read it out to you. This is what Miroslav says. He says, I used to think that the wrath was unworthy of God. That wrath, sorry, was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war of the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 300,000 people displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. He goes on to say this later on in his quote. He says, God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Once we accept the appropriateness of God's wrath, condemnation and judgment, there's no way of keeping it out there reserved for others. We have to bring it home as well. I originally resisted the notion of a wrathful God because I dreaded being that wrath's target. I still do. I knew I couldn't just direct God's wrath against others as if it were a weapon I could aim at targets I particularly detested. It's God's wrath, not mine. The wrath of the one and impartial God, lover of all humanity. If I want, to, if I want it to fall on evildoers, I must let it fall on myself when I deserve it. I personally find this quote really helpful as understanding the character of God. And what I guess this passage is teaching us is all of us deserve God's wrath because of our sin. Now, I know this is confronting. I know this is uncomfortable. But it's the truth. 
And it's what the Bible teaches. And because God loves us, He wants us to understand the truth. For God to be a loving God, He has to be a God of justice. And so because we have rejected Him naturally, we deserve His anger. Recently, um, my oldest son, Elijah, I've got two boys, Isaac is two, um, Elijah is four, uh, he was here before. Uh, recently, he broke, he broke his arm. Uh, he uh, didn't break his arm through bike riding or skateboarding or wrestling with his dad, uh, but instead he broke his arm as he was getting off the couch uh, to go to the fridge to get a snack. Um, so beware next time that you're binging on Netflix or watching the Olympics to be careful. It's dangerous stuff right there. Um, Anyway, that, do- that day when we went to the doctor, um, Elijah was freaking out because like, he, he actually literally believed that he thought the doctor was going to take away his arm. And so he was quite scared. He was expecting bad news. And the same thing happened when we had to take the cast off. He was expecting that the doctor was going to cut off his arm. And so on the first day when the doctor said to him he gets to keep his arm and gain a cast, which people can write on, he was over the moon. It was great news. And that's why he posted this picture for me. He was really excited. And the same thing happened when he saw his arm after the cast came off. He was like, oh, my arm, and it's not, it's not gone. It's great news. Now, why am I sharing this story with you? Well, the reason why in these opening verses that Paul depresses us, the reason why he tells us this bad news of if you're, not, if you're a Christian and what you used to be like before you followed Jesus, how you were spiritually dead in your sin, is because before you can understand the good news of Jesus, before you can understand the good news of grace, you need to understand the bad news of sin and the wrath of God. In Ephesians 2, Paul depresses us at the beginning with bad news. We are all the walking dead without Jesus. But in verse 4, the mood changes. Just like my son Elijah's mood changed when he saw his arm. And what we see here is Paul unpacks the second reason why the church belongs to Jesus. In a positive reason, because with Jesus, we are made alive. With Jesus, we are made alive. Look at verses 4 to 9 with me. I love these verses. They're amazing verses that unpack the good news of the gospel. Paul says this after depressing us. In verse 4, he says, But, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I love these verses. You see, in verses 1 to 3, Paul's unpacking how awful we are, and these verses, Paul is unpacking how awesome God is. He tells us how our God is a God of grace, of mercy, of love, that he's a kind God. But not only does this verse tell us about who God is, but also tells us what God does. How God saves us. How, how, how God is a God who saves. Like, Look at verse 4 and 8. When you're looking for a main point in the part of the Bible, look for repetition. And what does Paul repeat? He repeats, by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. It's not your own doing. It is God's mercy. These verses are breathtaking. You know, it's like, almost like Paul has says to the church of Ephesus and to us as well, look, you used to be spiritually dead. You used to be enslaved to the world, to Satan and to the flesh. You used to be under the wrath of God. But by grace, I have saved you from that. 
By grace you have been saved, even though you did not deserve it. But maybe we're wondering, like, how exactly did God do this? Well, once again, Paul, he teaches us, he tells us in these verses, in verses 4 to 7. And what we're going to look for here is there's three important verbs of which God is the object of. And it teaches us about how God saves us. First verb, in verse 4, says this. I underline it, should be on the screen, hopefully, in the um, Bible reading. First verb is this. God made us alive. Second verb, God raised us up. And third verb, God seated us in the heavenly realms. So how did God save us? Well, he saved us by making us alive, by raising us up, and then seating us in the heavenly realms. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, look, Joel, I don't remember ever being made alive or ascended into heaven or sat next to God. Like, I don't remember that. Like, like right now, I'm sitting next to Tim. He's a good guy, but he's not God. So, like, what's going on? What do you mean here? Well, what Paul is saying here is he's speaking in a spiritual way. He's not speaking in a physical way. You see, what Paul is trying to say to us is that God did all this to us when he raised Jesus, when he made Jesus alive, when he raised Jesus from the dead, and when he ascended him and sat him next to him. You see, what Paul is using here is union with Christ's language, which is a common theme throughout the book of Ephesians in particular. You see, what Paul is saying here is if you have faith in Jesus, you have a spiritual union with him. So as trippy as it sounds, in many ways, you share in Jesus' death. You share in his ascension and also when he sat next to God. You share it as if you experienced it for yourself. Yesterday morning, um, I watched Australia versus Serbia in the basketball. Um, and for this whole Olympics, I've been excited. I've been watching Australia dominate. Uh, and I was really excited about this match. I couldn't sleep the night before. Um, and unfortunately, though, I was only excited for about two minutes until I realized how much we were getting smashed. Um, and it was kind of depressing. They scored 14 points in the first half, which is not much. Um, but at the same time, as I was watching this game, I literally felt like I was playing this game. Like I was yelling at the screen. I had the boys around me. I'm like, come on, Aussie. And whenever Australia scored a point, which wasn't that often, but when they did... I felt like I scored that point. Like when Andrew Bogut did a massive dunk, I felt like I slam dunked the ring. Like I thought I was, like I was there. And when I talk to people about this game, and to be honest, I've talked to many people about this game, um, I speak as if I was there, as if I was part of the match, as if I was on the team. I know it's a flawed illustration, but in many ways, union with Christ is similar to that. We share with Jesus in ways which is not physical, but spiritual. You see, in the book of Ephesians, this union with Christ's language is really key. It's a key theme. You see this language over and over again, how we're in Christ or how we're with Christ or through Christ. And here Paul is trying to make the point that we have faith in Jesus. We have union with him, that he is in us and we are in him. You see, at the beginning of this passage in verses 1 to 3, Paul confronts us. He tells us that without Jesus, we're the walking dead. Without Jesus, we're spiritually dead and under the wrath of God. Paul, he confronts us. But then in verse 4, he comforts us. And in verse 4, he tells us how Jesus saves us from the world, from Satan, from sin, and from death. How Jesus saves us from the wrath of God because he took the wrath of God that we deserved. This is the good news of the gospel, and it's unpacked so clearly for us that you can be made alive only through faith in Christ and not through your own doing or your own works. Maybe tonight you've, you've realized that you're spiritually dead. Maybe tonight you've realized that you want to be transformed from death to life. You want to follow God. 
and not these other things. If that is you, then I want to encourage you not to try and be a better person, but instead to have faith in Christ and what he has done for you at the cross. That is what it means to be a Christian. And if, and if you're wondering, Joel, what's the first step in that step in that walk of faith? Well, the first step is to humble yourself before God and to recognize your sin and your need for him. Before I was a pastor, I was a civil engineer. And for five years, I basically studied how to fix things. Um, but then I quit being a civil engineer. I loved it, but I quit that to then go to Bible college to study to be a pastor. And basically for three years, I just studied how Jesus fixes things. Um, and what I basically already knew, but I learned in more detail, is what the Bible teaches us is that it's not through your good deeds, it's not through your good behavior, it's not through your good life that you say you, you are saved. It's through grace, through Jesus and what he has done, because he fixes things. And that's a humbling thing for us to take in. And so the first step in the walk of faith is to humble yourself before God. Recently, I've been uh, reading the book called Mere Christianity, uh, which is a, a book uh, written by the famous author called C.S. Lewis. Maybe you've heard of him. If you haven't, it's no big deal. But I want to read to you a quote that he says that I found really helpful on this topic of humbling yourself before God. It should come up on the screen. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, In God, you come up against something which in every way, sorry, in every respect, immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know, nothing, know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down. You cannot see something that is above you. The first step in your walk of faith is humbling yourself before God. It's taking this confronting news, but realizing that you are spiritually dead, that you're a sinner who needs grace and needs God's forgiveness. So, why does the church belong to Jesus? Reason number one, without him, we are the walking dead. With him, we're made alive. Let's look at our third reason. And Jesus, we are new creations. And heads up, this point's going to be a lot shorter. So if you've got your Bibles, look at verse 10. I'll read it out to us and it should come up on the screen. Paul says this. He says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Um, the Greek word here for the English word handiwork in this translation can also be tra um, translated creation. So in other words, you can read this verse as, for we are God's creation, created in Christ Jesus. And, and some ver um, translations of the Bible actually translate it that way. You see, another key theme in the book of Ephesians, on top of union with Christ, is also uh, newness or, or new creation. You see, what Paul's trying to say to us in this verse is that we are God's new creation. That you and I, when you have faith in Jesus Christ, you become a new creation and that you're not an old renovation that you're a new creation, not an old renovation. Recently, uh, my wife and I bought a house. Uh, we bought a two-bedroom place at Unendera. Uh, and the best way to describe our place is that it's a re renovator's dream. Uh, the house has wallpaper everywhere, has orange carpet everywhere, including in the kitchen. Um, it has lime green bench tops on the, in the kitchen, which is lovely. Um, and I, if I'm honest with you, it's not our dream home. Now, oh, by the way, if I just explain your home or, or what is your dream home as well, I'm really sorry. <laughs> it's, it's not our dream home. It might be yours, but it's not ours. My apologies. Um, like this, this place, it's not a new creation. Like it's 50 years old. It, it's it, it's going to take a lot of renovation. And I mean a lot. Like I'm probably going to rope a lot of you in to help me. It's going to take a lot of work. You see... What Paul is trying to say to us here in the scriptures is that when you have faith in Jesus Christ, you're a new creation. You're not some old renovation project. 
When you, when you have faith in Jesus Christ, God is not trying to renovate your old self and make you into a better person and smash down those walls of sin. But instead, He's made you a new creation. And He wants you to understand that you are in Christ and to live out your new identity, that new perfection, to be holy because you've been made holy in Jesus. You see, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, not only are you spiritually transformed from death to life, not only is your sin forgiven and the wrath of God that you deserve is taken, but you inherit Christ's perfect righteousness. You become a new creation in God's eyes. You become a new person with a new identity, with a new community, God's church, with a new destiny of heaven for eternity, and with new desires to do good. Not because you have to, but because you want to. To do good, not because that earns you salvation or earns your love from God, but because you are loved from God and have been saved through Him. One of these new desires, like I said, is to do good works. And in this passage, Paul says this, he says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, when, when you become in Christ, you become a new creation. And like I said, you go to do good, not because you have to, but because you want to. Because you've got new desires in your heart. And, and what Paul is trying to unpack in this verse, he's trying to say to us, is that God has sovereignly placed you where you are right now, at uni, at work, in your neighborhood, in this church, so you may do good, so you may love and serve other people. And that God has prepared you beforehand, before you even go and do those works. Just like how Tim was explaining before, how God wants to work through us and serve and love his people, as well as people who don't know him. You see, we are new creations. We're not renovation projects. And God wants us to understand and live out our new creation, how we're in Jesus and belong to him. You see, the church, it belongs to Jesus. Why? Three reasons. Reason one, without Jesus, we're the walking dead. With Jesus, we are made alive. And in Jesus, we are new creations. Now, maybe you're wondering, like, Joel, like, why, do, why are you hammering this? Like, you made this quite clear. Like, why is it important that I understand that the church is Jesus' church? Well, let me be honest with you. If you're a Christian, there's times, weeks, where you're tempted not to go to church. Where you're tempted to just, just not like church. Where you're tempted to just feel like, oh, it's too much effort. Like, they don't play music the way that I like it. I'm not getting much out of this. And it's really hard work trying to love people. I think when, as Christians, I've come across too many people, and this happens in my heart as well, we're tempted to say, we love Jesus, but we, we don't love his church. Like, I love Jesus, but I don't go to church. I'm not committed to church. The reality is that sort of thinking would grieve Jesus. I would grieve him. Later on in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians 5, verse 23, we're told that the church is Jesus' bride, that it's his wife, that he loves it dearly. Look, to, to, to illustrate this point for you, if I was to have you over at my house for dinner, and after we've done some renovation projects, then had dinner, if I was to have you over, and then if you were to say to me, um, Joel, you're a good guy, and you would say this, I really like you. There's lots of things about you, really appealing. But, but your wife, Emma, I just, just don't really like her. Like, there's just a lot of issues with her. Like, can, we, can we please like, sit down and talk about this? Like, I can guarantee you this. In that moment in time, I am not going to offer you dessert. I'm not going to make you a coffee. I'm not going to ask you to sit on my couch and to share your feelings with me. I'm going to point out to you that that's my wife. That's my bride. I know her flaws, but I love her just the same. And then I'm going to kick you out in the street. <laughs> when it comes to Jesus, it's the same with his church. He loves his church. 
He, he knows her imperfections. As a matter of fact, get this. He died for them at the cross. The church is Jesus' church. It's his church. Without him, we're the walking dead. With him, we are made alive. And in him, we're new creations. The church belongs to him. May we never forget that. You see, the church is Jesus' church. He loves it, and he wants us to love it as well. Let me pray to close. Father God, we want to thank you so much for the good news of the gospel, for how as dead sinners we are made alive, alive through faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you so much that you create the church through the good news of the gospel, for your son Jesus and how the church belongs to him, how it's his body, how it's his bride. Lord, we pray that you help us to understand how the church belongs to him and how he loves the church despite her imperfections. And Lord, I pray that you give us a love for your church as well, to do good, not because we want to, but because, sorry, not because we have to, but because we want to, as an overflow of our heart and our affection for Jesus and for his people. We thank you so much for the gift of the church and for this church and how you've blessed us in many ways. And ultimately, we thank you for Jesus Christ and the blessings we receive through him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In a second, uh, we're going to have question time, but now we're going to have a song in response.